God's Word, Galatians chapter 1, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time now to come and uh, listen to your Word, and we pray uh, that you would put that new song in our mouths. We pray that you'd open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your Word, and we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, she walked down the steps at the side of the plane. She put her feet on solid ground. After six years of waiting, she was finally home. Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe could hug her husband again. She could brush and braid her daughter's hair again. She could do all the things that she'd been prevented from doing but and longed to do. And seeing her speak to the press uh, a few days later was a very moving experience. Um, a reporter asked her if she would uh, ever go back to Iran again uh, to see her mother who lives there. And her husband, uh, Richard, looked pretty uh, definite about uh, whether that would happen or not. And she said this, I would have to be very cautious. Um, freedom. Freedom is a beautiful thing. And once we get freedom, we need to protect it. And Galatians is a letter all about freedom. Paul longs for Christians that he loves to taste it, and to really feel it. This letter tells us what Christian freedom is. It tells us what it costs. And it also tells us how it can be threatened. And it is the threat to freedom, Christian freedom, that we're going to think about tonight um, as we begin this series. And just um, two points tonight. Bad news and good news. And let's start with the bad news. Verses 6 to 10 bad news. And as we do, I want uh, to take you to Wimbledon, Centre Court. Uh, John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg, um, they couldn't have been more different, could they? Um, if you've never heard of them, they were two tennis players who dominated uh, the game in the 1970s. Borg was the, the ice-cool Swede. Uh, McEnroe was uh, the brash New Yorker. He was as famous for his outbursts as his backhand. Um, he would shout at the umpire, he would shout at the crowd, he would shout at his opponent, he would shout at himself, you cannot be serious, was one thing he said that I can repeat. And uh, Paul is just like him in verse 6. I am astonished. I can't believe it. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And if you've read Paul's letters, you'll know that he normally begins with um, a prayer or, or some praise of some kind of the readers. And here we've skipped over, we'll come back to it in a moment, his usual greeting but in verse 6, he's straight to the point, isn't he? What are you lot playing at? 
Now, why is he so blunt? I think the reason is the the seriousness of the situation. Christians that he loves are turning away from God to a different gospel. They're running from freedom. They're running back to captivity. And the language Paul uses here has echoes of military desertion. Um, Soldiers abandoning their posts. And this desertion, it has been caused by uh, distortion, verse 7. A group of people have got in um, amongst these believers. They've troubled them. They've, They've told them something that's unsettled their faith. And it's something that sounds very plausible. Um, Turn with me to Acts chapter 15, or or just listen if you want to do that. But Acts chapter 15, and the first uh, couple of verses. In Acts chapter 15, um, the verses before have described how what became known as the churches of Galatia, these collection of Christians, have come into being. And Paul shared the gospel with them. He's encouraged them. But look at verse 1. Some men came down from Judea, And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You see, um, the same kind of thing at the end of verse 5. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And I try to put yourself um, in the sandals of a first century um, Gentile, um, someone who wasn't born an Israelite. Maybe you've um, heard about Paul. And then he comes along and he tells you uh, the good news about Jesus. He says it's something that's promised in the Old Testament. And you believe him. Uh, You come to faith in Jesus. But then another group of people come along and they say, well, what Paul's given you is fine. But we've got an upgrade We've got something else. Did you know Paul wasn't actually one of the original disciples? Paul's a bit um, extreme. He's a little bit unusual. We've got something better. Oh, the Old Testament that he spoke about, we know all about that. And if you just listen to us, um, if you do what we say, then you'll really, really be saved. And it sounds persuasive. Here are Christians who want to feel a sense of assurance, and just as we often do as Christians. And they're attracted to a community, some, some influential um, leaders who, who seem to offer them a sense of real belonging. And they could be close to people who really knew the Scriptures. So it sounds very credible. It meets... Um, a felt need. It even retains some of the language that Paul would have shared. No doubt Paul spoke about Moses, about um, obedience to, to Jesus, about the law. And yet, what does Paul think of it? Paul says it is another gospel. In fact, it is no gospel at all. Listen to his language in verse 8 and 9. If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, 
let him be accursed. And just to prove that he's not just kind of lost his cool uh, momentarily, he repeats the exact same thing in verse 9, doesn't he? Um, the word gospel, it means um, good news. It was used a lot in the first century um, world. Um, news of a military victory was one example. And for Christians, it means the announcement of what God has done in Jesus. And we'll think more about that good news in, in a few moments. But what Paul confronts, what Paul exposes here is bad news. It is an anti-gospel because in this message, the, the focus has shifted. And it's no longer just about Jesus. No, it's Jesus and. Jesus and. See, so look at verse 6 again. Can you see Paul um, taking uh, these believers back? He says, you are running away from the God who called you in what? In the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ. So God didn't save you, Paul is saying, because of what you did or because you were special. And God didn't save you because he thought you'd be the kind of person who would uh, make a really good Christian. God didn't save you because naturally there was something in you that meant that um, you were more open than other people. And the same is true of us. Whether we can never remember a day that we didn't trust Jesus or if we've only just begun to trust Jesus, it is always, always a work of God's grace. It is completely undeserved. It is all of his kindness. Now I think you and I, we find this quite hard to believe and um, we naturally think uh, that we're saved by what we do by our performance and um, salvation by works is a kind of it's a bit like the default setting on um, our phones and I think our culture kind of reinforces this we are constantly being told aren't we to rate the service that we have just received, when we buy something, when we go to a restaurant, whatever it is, give our feedback. There is, and there is always more to do, more to check. And this can infect our Christian lives. We may not be tempted to be circumcised, but we can very easily think if we could just read our Bibles enough, if we could share our faith enough, if we could fill our diaries with enough Christian activities, if we could just repent enough, if we could feel sorry enough, if we could keep the plates spinning in our lives, then, then we would know the peace and the joy that we so often lack. And the problem is it doesn't work, does it? We can never do enough. And we often feel as Christians that we are running on a treadmill, just going nowhere. And when we live like this, well, what happens? It takes our eyes off Jesus. And teaching like this, it keeps them on ourselves. And the devil loves it. 
The devil hates when a Christian is just very simply trusting in what Jesus has done for them. The devil loves it when we tie ourselves in knots over whether God loves us. See, as Paul will say in chapter 2, if righteousness were through the law, if it were possible for me to earn a right standing with God, if I could do that, then it's as simple as this. Christ died for nothing. Now, thoughts like this horrified Paul. This is why he includes himself um, in verse 8. Do you see? I would rather be cursed, he says, than deny this gospel. If I start saying these things, that's what should happen to me. And the reason he speaks like this is because the false teachers were critiquing Paul. They were undermining Paul. They were giving the impression that um, he'd made the gospel up. But Paul is saying, this is nothing, it is not to do with me. This is bigger than me. I am not trying to please men. If I were still trying to do so, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Just turn with me to the end of the letter, uh, chapter 6 and verse uh, 12. Because here Paul mentions uh, the false teachers again. And just listen to what he says about them. He kind of unmasks them here. It is those, he says, who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Maybe you can see what he's saying there. Paul um, could say this. Because he was, he had once been one of them. He had persecuted believers. But can you see what he's saying? The people who are trying to lure you away from a simple trust in Jesus, take you away from with this kind of teaching, they are people who are afraid. They are not a people, sorry, to be afraid of. They are people who are afraid. And bullies are often like that, aren't they? And Paul says these false teachers, they aren't willing to face opposition. No, they want you to join them in a kind of more respectable faith. Now what enabled Paul to think this way? And how can we live with the kind of um, carefree attitude that he describes in chapter 1 verse 10. It does not come naturally to us, does it? What can free us from our desire to please men? Well, only a powerful message, only a work, only a word from outside. And that takes me to uh, the second point. We don't just see bad news in this passage. We also see good news. Good news, verses 1 to 5. And in 1 to 5, Paul is hammering home two things, that he is God's man and that he has God's message. 
And these were the two things the false teachers were calling into question. And Paul will have none of it. And in verse 1, he states his credentials. And um, I think the difference between who the false teachers think he is and who he actually is, well, it's a bit like the difference between um, Prince William and Boris Johnson. Because there was a day when Boris Johnson thought, uh, I think he said, I want to be world king. Um, But I think uh, there was a day when Boris Johnson said, I would quite like to be prime minister. Um, And from that day, the ball started rolling. But Prince William, he didn't wake up, did he, one morning and say, "Um, I think uh, being king would be a good career choice for me. Um, I think I've got what it takes. I could find a wife, we could have some kids, and we could live in a palace. Absolutely not. It was all outside of his control. And Paul was the same. God interrupted his plans, didn't he? And Jesus, who'd been raised from the dead by God the Father, speaks of him in verse 1, confronted him confronted him as he went to Damascus. One of the commentators puts it this way, Paul is an apostle with as much authority as the original 12 apostles of Jesus. He was not made an apostle by some committee in Jerusalem. To be an apostle on the level with the original 12, one had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection and to have received that apostleship from Jesus in his resurrection body. And Paul qualified. Paul qualified. He is God's man. Now this is not um, the main application of this uh, passage, but I think this means that you and I should be uh, very wary of people who try to um, separate Jesus and Paul. And you often hear uh, people saying things like, um, I'm a Jesus type of Christian, not a Paul type of Christian. Um, Jesus was loving, Paul was judgmental. I don't really like what he says about sex or other ethical issues. And he's often mistakenly accused of creating Christianity. But what did Jesus say of Paul? This man is my chosen instrument. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. And so we need to know that you cannot put a cigarette paper between Jesus and Paul. You cannot have one without the other. Paul is God's man. He is Paul, he is God's apostle. And he comes with grace and peace from God the Father. And what I want us to see now are three aspects of this good news, this gospel. Maybe you can see the first. It's the origin of the good news. The origin of the good news. It's at the end of verse 4. The good news Paul shares is according to the will of God the Father. According to the will of our God and Father. 
And what this points to is a plan. Before time began, God planned to save us. He set in motion a process. And I think this corrects a faulty uh, view that we can sometimes have of our salvation. Sometimes Christians can think, God loves me because he sent Jesus to die for me. And that sounds okay, doesn't it? I am loved by God because of what Jesus did on the cross. But it isn't quite the gospel. Listen to this really carefully. God the Father doesn't love us because Jesus died for us. It is not that the death of Jesus kind of twists God the Father's arm and so makes him do something that he didn't want to do. No, the gospel is better than that. What does the most famous verse in the the Bible say? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That is the origin of the gospel according to the will of God the Father. I think in these verses we don't just see the origin of the gospel, we see the heart of it. Grace to you, Paul says, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave us an example that we might follow him who performed lots of miracles that we might worship him that's not what the text says is it who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age and here we are being taken right to the heart of the cross, right to the very center of the gospel, to Jesus dying as our substitute in our place. Paul will pick up this in chapter 2, verse 20. He will say of Jesus, he loved me. He loved me. He gave himself for me. And tonight we can be that personal with Jesus. We can know that too. Paul says that Jesus died to deliver us, to rescue us from the present evil age. It's important to say that what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we're to now live as kind of hermits and uh, escape the world. That's something that sometimes Christians have done in the past. No, this is not about a change of location. It's, it's really about a change of status. And to paraphrase John Stott, one of the commentators who's so helpful in Galatians, he says, because of what Jesus has done, history has been divided into two, two ages, the present age and the age to come. But right now, those two ages, they overlap. And in this present uh, evil age, the devil has influence, but he has been defeated. See, the moment the devil thought he'd won, the moment Jesus died on the cross, that was the very moment that Jesus destroyed him. I think sometimes as Christians we can think, I have sinned so badly that God is finished with me. I must belong to the devil now. I am lost. 
And God says, no. Listen to Paul in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we have been rescued from the devil's power over us. We have been set free. He does not command our futures. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, you and I have peace with God. We have been delivered. And that takes me to the final element of the good news, the goal of it. I think we see this at the end of verse 5. And to sum it up in one word, it is worship. To whom be glory, Paul says, forever and ever. Amen. Martin Luther, he loved uh, Galatians. He called it his Katie von Bora. And when you know that his wife was called Katie von Bora, um, you can realize just how much he loved uh, Galatians. He loved Galatians because it showed him the gospel. And when he came to understand the gospel, he said this, All at once I felt that I'd been born again and entered into paradise through open gates. He loved Galatians. He loved the gospel. And he loved to sing. Listen to this. I have no use for cranks who despise music, he said. I love how uh, blunt he is. Music is a gift of God. It drives away the devil and makes people joyful. Next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. And I think this letter is going to, I hope, give us um, reasons to sing. It's going to remind us of the freedom that Jesus has won for us. It's going to show us what it cost. And it's going to make us say, you cannot be serious but not in anger, but in amazement. How can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He died for me who caused his pain. He bore my sins and I go free. Well, let's pray together.